Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Jason Lewis, the managing partner at Better Schools and upcoming author of a new book. But before we get into that, Jason, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Glad to be here, Steve. I snagged a moment of your time at a conference, so we're sitting in a hotel lobby uh, to um, talk a little bit about fundraising, but your upcoming book, The War for Fundraising Talent, um, before we get into everything about why that book and what you're doing, can you just talk a little bit about uh, your background and what brings you to this work? Yeah, Steve. So uh, thank you again for having me, and I look forward to this uh, conversation this morning. Um, I'm 20 years into a uh, fundraising career, and uh, in um, I have, for the most part, committed myself to uh, small shops. And so uh, I have worked in a number of small nonprofit organizations, had one experience, a very um, sort of significant, transformative sort of experience in a very large shop um, while I was in grad school at the time. And, uh, and, uh, and I began to ask the question, um, what is the difference between the small shops and the larger shops? And why is it that maybe the larger shops have some advantages over the smaller ones? So I started challenging some of those assumptions and stuff. I think that's what we're going to talk a lot mm -hmm. about this morning. Certainly what's in the book and certainly what I sort of figured out in grad school. So that's... It's, it's fun when those uh, grad school moments can kind of bring you to, there's more here. I just need to dig into it. There's more yep. going on. So you, you had some experience doing that smaller work, which is an awful lot of what I focus on, too. Um, it can be really challenging to come into a culture where there's a, this uh, sort of um, starvation mentality around developing resources for the work. Um, and I know that that's a, um, sort of a theme uh, in an early version of the book that I was kind of paging through, talking about this, uh, you know, if we're... Um, a small organization, we can't pay for, uh, you know, real fundraising talent. Uh, we're just going to have to make do with whatever we think is a reasonable dollar amount. But um, how do you begin the conversation with people when you talk to them about um, why this book and why the title War for Fundraising Talent? I mean, there's a, um, a kind of conflictory thing we don't always hear about uh, in the nonprofit sector, but you've set it up as a, a challenge. Yeah, I, um, I knew, um, I have a little bit of a marketing edge to me. So mm -hmm. I knew that the title would, uh, would serve me well. Um, it is not a, uh, the war for fundraising talent is, uh, the book is a critique on professional fundraising. Um, and I'm not, uh, I'm not making the, uh, I'm not talking about the traditional sort of war for talent who gets who, um, I want you, you know, I'm the employer and I want this guy or I want this gal sort of argument. What I'm describing as the war for fundraising talent is more of an, an ideological sort of misunderstanding of how highly effective fundraising actually works. And what I'm arguing in the book is that those organizations that have that understanding, which I have found to be generally larger shops, not mm -hmm. necessarily all larger shops, but those shops that have a true understanding of high, how highly effective fundraising actually works tend to be the ones that are therefore winning this war. Um, and that distinction I, I have sort of summarized in a number of ways in the book, but talent is certainly one of those. Mm -hmm. um, I think the fundraising profession is somewhat guilty of spending the last several decades of sort of fascinating ourselves with the donor and understanding the donor and um, just sort of very, very much oriented to, to, um, to knowing and understanding who the donor is and how much they can give. Um, a lot of analysis, a lot of theorizing, 
um, a lot of profiling, but we don't understand our organizational cultures and we don't really understand ourselves as fundraisers. And so the book is much more of a, um, I, 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 and I say this in my seminars, Steve, um, I say to young fundraising professionals, if you do not understand yourself and you do not understand the organizational culture in which you work, um, the likelihood that you will find success in fundraising is very low. That's a really good jumping off point on some of the other parts of the book, though, because I, I think um, if anybody takes a look at the research of the longevity of your average development professional in uh, a more mid-range shop in particular, uh, I mean, you're going to see 12, 18-month kind of tenures as not uncommon, that people will come in, they'll talk about goals, they'll set up processes, but if things don't shake out the way that everybody expected them to shake out pretty quickly, the opportunity for that person to just up and go uh, is certainly um, one thing that I see happen a fair amount. I mean, as, as you look at that culture of the organization and leading to success in the first place, uh, is that transition element part of uh, what you're challenging, or is that not something you've been seeing? I think, I think it's easy for nonprofit organizations to blame to blame the fundraiser and to blame the donor for their fundraising woes. Yeah. Um, I think it's e and and uh, any systems theorist sort of any anyone who sort of thinks systems theory would sort of say the same thing. It's much easier for us to sort of point the finger away from ourselves. Um, and in my consulting work, one of the things that we do is we try to sort of encourage our clients to the very much back off of the idea of the quick hire. Um, I mean, we'll spend a year preparing for that first initial hire of a development director of a fundraising professional to ensure that the organizational, the organization itself is, is truly ready for the type of fundraising that they probably want to pull off but really don't know how. I don't think we have a problem in the sector with finding individuals who can be passionate about the causes that we have mm -hmm. and therefore be compelled to go out and raise support for that. I think our biggest problem is, is that we're cre we don't know how to create an environment where they can find success. And so they very quickly in that 18 month sort of window that you're describing and sometimes even much less time, right. they very quickly find out that this environment is not setting me up for success, especially in a small shop. I'm sort of the awkward stepchild in this organization. Nobody understands my role. Um, nobody wants to be engaged with what I'm doing. Um, and I get blamed for whatever the financial woes happen to be. Um, and they jump ship and they jump ship very quickly. I don't think that's necessarily uh, so much a reflection of the fundraiser themselves as much as it is the organization itself doesn't know how to get this done. And again, that's the that's a lot of the comparing and contrasting that I'm doing in the book between organizations that really get it and organizations that don't. So let's talk a little bit about that, how to set up a culture successfully within a charity that um, maybe has had that trouble before, where they have uh, brought in people uh, with unreasonable expectations, not enough support, a, a culture that views fundraising as some kind of a dirty word and, and not a part of growing mission support. Uh, you know, if they've had that in the past and recognize that now, if they're ready to change, how do they most reasonably begin if they really understand, all right, we've lost the last couple of people because maybe we didn't have something set up. How do we start shifting what that looks like? So in the book, Steve, I introduce a number of sort of um, simple 
uh, mindset changes. And one of those is a, is a, is an exercise that we do, um, is an exercise that we do in my seminars. And it's, it's, we, we ask all the people in the seminar to basically on a simple index card, I'll be doing this with my, my audience this afternoon. I'll ask them to identify three types of gifts for themselves. So Steve, if, if I invited you to attend an event Mm -hmm. and you just met me and you think Jason's a nice guy and, um, but you don't, you don't care much for the organization. Maybe you don't even really know what the organization is. Right. You might write the organization a check for fifty or a hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and and um, and then the second gift I ask you to write on the card is is that contribution that you and your spouse or your partner might would contemplate and discuss, and you would plan for it. It would have to fit into your twelve month sort of financial plan. Um, it would be something you could do in the next several months. It wouldn't be something you could necessarily pull the cash out of your wallet and do, but you could certainly do it. You could certainly make this contribution in the next, next several months. And then, and then there's another contribution uh, that I asked them to put in sort of the C column. And that is a gift that is sort of an aspirational gift. Um, and it, it would require a little bit of planning. Um, it's something you could do in the next three to five years, but it's not something that you could, um, it, it I, I tell, I ask folks, look, don't put a million dollars on the card if you can't actually do that. And and what I call these three gifts is um, the first gift is what I call a trivial gift. And it's very hard for organizations to embrace the idea of that trivial gift. And sometimes when I'm discussing this in online chat forums or something, I get pushback, like, how dare you call it this particular gift a trivial gift? And and I say to those 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 folks who are giving me pushback, I say, you know, Steve, I, I point out, I'm not calling any particular gift trivial. I'm just asking all of us to acknowledge that all of us have one, that right. we all know there's a particular amount that we could give to any organization at any particular time that tends to be more impulsive, tends to be less thoughtful, um, and doesn't tend to be that gift that next month or next year we're going to probably necessarily give to that same organization. It's probably just going to go to somebody else. And I think this is for you who works with small shops and and myself who works with a lot of small shops, a lot of our organizations are just getting lots of these trivial gifts. Mm -hmm. And we look at these trivial gifts and we draw some assumptions about them um, without, uh, we draw some assumptions that basically lead us to sort of adopt this sort of scarcity, sort of poverty mindset. So when a donor gives us $100, we sort of assume that's what they can give us. And so we get into this constant pursuit of the donor who can give us more. But what I point out to my seminar attendees is that you wrote two other numbers on the card. And that other that other card I call a meaningful gift. And that meaningful gift takes a little bit more time and requires a little bit more discussion. Um, oh, uh, but um, but you can't you can't necessarily get that gift at what I call an arm's length. Right. And a lot of our patterns of habits um, in fundraising, especially in small shops, get done at an arm's length. Um, and uh, um, I, I make the very bold ac- accusation that small nonprofit organizations, in particular, are what I what I would say are addicted. And I don't I don't hesitate on this term. They are addicted to an arm's length relationship that results in trivial gifts from their donors and organizations that know how to raise money very effectively, understand the value and the importance of that initial trivial gift, but know how to effectively transition that donor from that trivial levels of support to that more meaningful level of support. And they also understand, I'm wrapping this thought up, um, they also understand that 
that meaningful level of support, that that sort of gift in the middle that everyone puts on their card is essential is always a prerequisite, almost always a prerequisite to get to those very significant levels, which is that gift that oftentimes the boards and the bosses want us to raise. And small nonprofits totally miss the idea that you cannot move a donor. The likelihood of moving a donor from a $50 or $100 gift in that trivial level all the way over to that very significant level is very unlikely. You've got to get them to that meaningful level of support. If your systems and processes don't do that, you're totally undermining your whole um, – it's not going to work. Right. Well, culturally, within the organization, the expectation of uh, you know more donor acquisition, more donor acquisition you've talked about, right? Just yes. go get more names. Yep. Uh, uh, gets the, uh, you know, more of those people that are at that uh, level of I'm not giving because I have a deep personal connection to this mission. I'm giving because you seem nice. My friend asked me to. I was at the event, you know, whatever in the world it might be. And you're right. That's a fairly easy thing to do for most people to hit that trivial level, feel good, be done. And it dismisses a lot of further engagement um, that you really do have, I think, when you're pushing people into that more uh, mid-range level of, I need you to think about this. Not you can just make the gift and, and go on with your day and buy groceries like you would normally, but rather when you write this next gift, it's going to have to be a conversation. You're really going to have to contemplate, is this the right value for the mission work that I want to do? This isn't a, a quick thing. But what I was reading in some of the stuff you'd put out there is, you know, that's a labor-intensive proposition to get people to. So you need to get the charities to get to the the point of how are you going to staff those continuing conversations to pull people closer than that arm's length. Um, and that, I think, is a, a little bit of that organizational cultural challenge of are you – really recruiting and training the right kinds of volunteers, board members? Are you paying staff to do it? How are you going to get that amount of human connection? You just can't automate everything about that larger gift, right? Yeah, I I, I think that's actually going to get easier than harder. Oh, good. I think that's actually going to get easier, Steve, because um, – and I, I always remind my audiences that I, I've spent now – close to 20 years raising money for nonprofit organizations. I've been the development director in the small shops. And my message I'm trying to advocate for the small shop, one person development officer, the person that finds themselves as the one person Mm -hmm. raising money in a small shop, less understood, somewhat isolated, and trying to get their job done well. I think the question that you're asking, and I get asked that a lot, like how do we we appreciate what you're saying, Jason, but how do you actually do this, right? It sounds great, but how do you actually implement that? What I think fundraising professionals are not paying attention to is that essentially that new acquisition process, mm-hmm. that's the part of the process that's always that's, that's always based on efficiency and volume and generally very can be very automated. Yes. And for most organizations can be delivered on either by an outsourced a vendor or technology, web-based, or, or in small shops, oftentimes can be accomplished with volunteers. And a lot of fundraising professionals miss the fact that that new acquisition process designed to get that initial and so oftentimes trivial gift is often is generally just designed to break even. We're not mm-hmm. looking for this. We're not, right. making, we're not making huge margins on this contribution. If you have decided as a fundraising professional to define your professional career in that particular lane, you're in the wrong lane because you're not going to be competing with me 
the Rockstar fundraiser, or you, Steve, who knows how to do major gifts, you're essentially going to be competing with technology. Mm -hmm. And everybody's talking about that. And we're not the only professional line. You know, we're not the only field of work that's that's talking about the impact of robots and automation and um, artificial intelligence and all those sorts of things. Um, so I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent on that. But if anything is essentially going to get done more and more by technology, by automation, using artificial intelligence, it's going to be the how are we going to acquire that first gift. Right. And if, if fundraising professionals do not embrace the idea that small shops and larger shops alike are going to find more and more ways to use technology and automation and other things to, to the point at which the human-to-human -human interaction is more and more necessary, to the point in the sort of the fundraising continuum where human-to-human -human is, is essential, mm -hmm. which is that point where you ask for that more meaningful gift, right. which is where the margins are better, which is where we can actually deliver on what it means to do relationship fundraising, for example. Um, getting back to my sort of original thought here, if fundraising professionals do not begin to see themselves across the lunch table, having the lunch table conversations, having coffee with their donors, meaningful engagement is the term that I use, meaningful engagement that therefore leads to a meaningful level of support, that B-level gift that I ask my right. seminar attendees to get to. If you do not define your career by that type of work, you're undermining your opportunities as a small shop fundraiser. Once you get that um, uh, understanding, though, of w we've done all this great donor acquisition with relatively little effort comparatively, and yep. uh, we've got some folks that are saying, all right, you know, 100 bucks I can do without thinking too much about it. Um, meaning, okay, uh, that means that you're probably financially capable of doing substantially more than that if you believed in what we were doing, if you're really committed to this particular mission as opposed to, you know, my friend invited me to breakfast and I wrote a check for 100 bucks and, you know, I didn't give you a lot of energy. Right. But if we use that um, that pool of folks that have made that more trivial gift as uh, an indication of, of potential and interest, um, that next step of what is it about what we do that matters to them? How did we come to them? Because I think it is very different to send the you know letter signed by the organization's executive director sort of facelessly to say, thanks for your $100 gift, would you consider $500 next time? Rather than going, that person gave 100 bucks because their friend Jason asked him to. Um, we should check in with Jason about you know what's going on with that person. How do we connect with them? What do they know? We should be looking at um, more information. All of those things that I think are more successful but are more labor-intensive. So yep. it gets back to that organizational culture problem now of going back to that, that organization that hasn't had a good culture of uh, developing uh, uh, those, those kinds of next-level gifts and say, you're going to need to put some time in this. It doesn't all have to be paid staff time. Uh, again, if you've got the right volunteers, the right training, the right mechanisms, the, all the rest of it. But it, it requires a level of effort beyond that automated thing to kind of now reach up. There's, I think, where that culture shift can sometimes be that you were identifying where they go, well, we're not going to put that kind of energy into fundraising. We have to do programs with that, and we're going to pay people to do something else. They've got to be willing to make that shift. And I, I think that there's, there's where an opportunity is to help identify what is it culturally that those folks go, this work isn't just banging on doors to get money out of people that don't care. We are developing a core of supporters that are making their financial gift because there's a meaningful mission connection here. And we sometimes miss that part. 
Yeah, Steve, there is a, uh, there's a fascinating study that I found it to be fascinating. Um, uh, a study that was done by a woman, a PhD study uh, at the University of Alabama, and she, um, she, was, looking at, she was looking at hospitals. She identified four, uh, three clusters of hospitals. Um, and each of the clusters, and I, ta- I unpack this in the book, um, and I, I forget the woman's name. I, sh- I should certainly be attributing this to her. Um, but she identifies three clusters of hospitals. Um, and these aren't necessarily all the big eds and meds type hospitals. And these, some of these were community hospitals. But essentially, the ones that were the most efficient at fundraising also had the highest donor to um, employee ratio. So they had more. They were employing more people. And they had the lowest cost. Um, and in addition to that, they were also soliciting multi-year pledges. They were also yep. the most likely to be soliciting multi-year pledges. They were the least likely to be support uh, to be pursuing um, corporate gifts. Um, so these were organizations that sort of had a grasp on how all of this works. My book is sort of sounding the alarm on the idea that I think younger people coming into the profession today are figuring this out faster. So um, I, I see it, and when I'm at a conference like the one I'm, that we're at here today, I see my peers and, and even some of my older peers who've been in the field for you know, 20, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. or longer compared to those who have been in the field for less than 10 years. And the, the practices that are informing, so a young person who's been in the field for less than 10 years has the advantage of, of understanding, if, if he or she, for example, is coming to conferences and such, but may or may not have an undergraduate or graduate level training in professional fundraising, they're getting a grasp of how all this works much quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, puts, it puts the 20, 20 plus year tenured fundraising professional sort of at a disadvantage that if they don't get their head wrapped around how all this works, if they don't sort of make this transition to what I call the middle lane, to that middle, that meaningful level of support, um, you're going to have people, not because they're younger, not, not because they're younger at all. This is, this is really very little to do with age, but there are, there are certainly places in history where when you came into a particular industry, when you made an entrance into a particular economy, when you, um, uh, when you, uh, when you invented a particular g- gadget or gizmo mm-hmm. or widget, um, you had the advantage of timing. Um, and I think our younger fundraising professionals today um, are grasping what we're talking about here and, um, and having the advantages that some of their, um, their more senior colleagues don't have the advantages of. Um, and it's essentially going to, it's going to get in the way. It's going to create some messiness um, in, in, in especially in these smaller shops. Yeah. So you'd mentioned a little while ago in the, in the conversation about the, uh, the passion for the mission as a really important component of being successful here. Um, I, one of the reasons that I ended up um, starting my own shop is uh, I, I noticed it within myself this uh, ability to fall in love with darn near any nonprofit mission. You know, you talk to somebody who really cares about what they're doing. You're like, wow, that's the coolest thing. I want to help you with that. I'm really engaged. But not everybody falls in love with every mission, and sometimes that is a real challenge to talk about 
that passion translating to a lot of activity to help other people translate that passion for themselves. And uh, I think that as you talk about that, folks that come in with um, less experience in how things used to be done, um, where so much of this was postal mail and so much of it was um, that acquisition part was more um, cost expensive, more difficult, as you said, that this is being more easily automated, less costly, all the rest of yes. it. To shift that attention and time into that, that passion mission, uh, I think sometimes feels to me like there are charities out there that are trying to make this more formulaic, where they're going, well, we do the four-page letter and we bold oh, yeah. these sentences and we have these colors in the envelope and that's what's going to raise us more money next time. And I think it really is more in that getting past the arm's length to the, the donor passion. And how do you help people kind of bring that focus around? Or are there other areas where you think it's more important to start with the passion? Well, you've got, and I, and I certainly tackle both of these topics. I think you're sort of talking about two different things that we really struggle with, in particular in the small shops. Um, one of the state, and this is very simply based on a lot of my research. So this is not necessarily me thinking, but this is sort of me repackaging the brilliant thoughts of other people. Mm -hmm. But it's this idea of sort of this inverse relationship between growth and control. Um, yeah. A lot of organizations want to grow their fundraising capacity. They want to raise more support, but they don't want to relinquish control. And so these arm's length, method, these arm's length methods of fundraising maintain a level of control that they can't otherwise get if they let the donor come closer in. And we're oftentimes very fearful of the idea that donor intent may conflict with mission drift. What you know, We're always right. asking the question, well, if I let this donor write me a bigger check, what is that donor going to ask me to do? A lot of these small shop fundraisers and their executive directors and even oftentimes their board members have never allowed a donor to come close enough in to the point where they discover that most donors really aren't all about the idea of sort of hijacking your mission. Yeah. They don't really <laughs> want to make you. They might. They might ask you. I, I said this when I was when I was an executive um, at a nonprofit. I said they might ask you to paint the wall purple and you want to paint it pink. But some of that's pretty silly. Um, and I don't want us to. I certainly don't want to advocate to allowing a donor to come in and have undue influence. But let's not. Let's develop practices where we actually can get a little closer to the donor and actually discover that maybe they don't really they're not really going to ask us to do all that all that much different now the other thing steve that you um that you mentioned it's this idea of passion um and again i i was doing a lot of research for the book and i was looking at some brilliant studies on this idea that there's actually psychologists actually recognize what are what are actually two types of passion there's an obsessive type of passion and there's a um a harmonious type of passion. Neither types of these passions will necessarily get in the way of accomplishing your goals. And this is, again, why the sort of the difference between uh, um, the more tenured fundraising professional and the younger fundraising professional um, is I think we have a lot of fundraisers out there today that have been doing this for, say, 15 or 20 years that have sort of relied on what I would, what psychologists would call an obsessive form of passion that doesn't really identify with who they are. It sort of takes an enormous amount of portion of their identity. Um, it doesn't prevent you from accomplishing your goals, but it's the type of passion that we oftentimes associate with burnout. And yeah. I think the best example of that is Neil Rudenstein. Neil Rudenstein was the president at Harvard for 10 years. Um, 
uh, dean of students at Princeton for 20 years, lover lover of poetry, and 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 if you look at any of the books that he's ever written, it's you know, it's it's it's, it's poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, his passion certainly wasn't raising support necessarily. It, it just doesn't seem to line up when you sort of get to know Rudenstein in, in my research. Um, but Rudenstein's also that 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 story. If you know the story, he ended up on the cover of Newsweek magazine in 1990. I think it was 93. Um, over the headline "Exhausted," mm-hmm. um, and at the time, Harvard was in the midst of a 2.5 billion dollar capital campaign. It was an enormously successful campaign. It was the largest in Ivy League history. Um, but here Rudenstein becomes this sort of poster child for executive exhaustion, you know, for the exhausted executive. Um, and I think you have people that are coming into the work now saying, okay, I can have a harmonious passion for fundraising that's more oriented towards the donor who is very excited about the mission and not be so compelled by the mission myself. And small shops really get sort of hung up on that. Mm. The the prerequisite for a lot of fundraising professionals in small shops and big shops alike sometimes is that you have to have a a passion for the cause. You know, are you passionate about animals? Are you Mm -hmm. passionate about education? And what I like to tell my um, my clients is is let's find somebody who's really passionate about doing fundraising really well, building meaningful relationships with um, meaningful relationships with your donors, and allow the fundraising professional to develop that passion for your cause in the process. And that's a risk. Again, that gets at some of that control. Yeah, we, it, it scares us. It makes us nervous. Um, but I think the likelihood. Um, Fundraising professionals are, yeah, they, yeah, I, I cer- certainly don't want you to hire somebody who has values and convictions that are incompatible or sort of completely out of sync. But whether or not they have to necessarily walk in the door and say, I'm, a, um, I'm passionate about literacy and, and to be fearful that they won't eventually fall in love with the idea that, hey, yeah, people do need to know how to read um, mm-hmm. is something that we need to sort of wrestle with. Well, th- this is a, a really interesting concept of the the passion of the person that you're bringing in to be that one that wants to connect with individuals about um, what it means for them to become philanthropists, for them to become engaged. And if your passion is, like, I can help those people come up that level, to make that next gift, feel like they're there. But that means you've got to be listening to them about what they care about and how they're engaged in the mission and all the rest of it. And I think that necessitates the ability to let go of some donors who tell you very quickly and up front, I, I made the $100 gift because my friend Jason asked me to. I don't, I don't really care about what you're doing. I mean, it's nice and, and it's fine and I don't have any objection to it, but that gift wasn't an indication that I'm ready to be in a conversation about your mission. That gift was my friend Jason asked me to. And we should be able to note that in our donor records and move on, I think, to more productive conversations with people that may be ready to make that investment. But the methodology that has been sort of beaten into the sector is once you get a name, you just keep going after them and if they made the $100 gift that means they should be making the $500 gift and you keep going after them for that next one and 
Um, I am still to this day getting postal mail um, from St. Jude's Children's um, that I made a contribution to in the 20th century because my mother told me to. And when my mother tells me I need you to make this gift, I went and made the gift. I have all kinds of charities that I care about that I make other gifts to. And when that piece of postal mail shows up yet again... I go, I tried to get off this list once. I tried to tell them that you're wasting your money. But the mechanism that they were working with didn't say, I want to engage you about your passion or whatever. The mechanism was we just keep sending you postal mail on the hope that eventually something's going to hit. And I think if we look at what you were talking about, about the passion of that, that talented fundraiser that comes in who says, my job is to align that donor with what we're doing. And if that donor's not aligned, we should note that and move on to the time and energy with donors that might really have, you know, a passion for what we're doing, except that maybe they do want to talk about whether the wall should be pink instead of purple. Fine, let's have that conversation then. But but we got to spend our time with those folks and not people that are disqualified, and I don't think we do that well yet. No, we don't. We don't. And, um, and there's so many layers. We don't have time to do yeah. this today. <laughs> but, um, and, and, and I don't... I do unpack the idea early in the book about this idea that we have an organizational addiction to arm's length relationships that resembles the same type of addictive sort of behaviors that we would understand if, if a family, an individual in our life was, had an addiction to some sort of substance or mm-hmm. some sort of um, a behavior. Um, and, and I think for so what I, what I have, what I have essentially been able to sort of observe and figure out, um, is you know when 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 you interact with some when you inter- interact with somebody who has an addiction problem whatever that addiction happens to be there is a lot of rationalizing yeah. there is yeah. a lot of denial um, there is a lot of grasping for control um, yeah, I, 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 for twenty years I've I've heard the argument um, and I try to make this pretty clear in the book um, and I get really frustrated when I hear the uh, you know, is direct mail dead, for example, mm-hmm. that classic art. And, and everyone, will, somebody will write it next month or something. Is direct right. mail dead? And I think it's the wrong argument. And I think it's the, um, there will always be some sort of new acquisition strategy. And it just yep. so happens that direct mail has sort of played that, that, that role for us very well for a long time. But we have gotten drunk on direct mail. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not so much, there's nothing wrong with direct mail any differently than somebody who can sort of, um, you know, go out, have a decent, you know, have a couple, a couple of drinks if you mm-hmm. and I went out tonight and they're just not getting in trouble. Um, but we haven't learned how to have direct mail be a part of that don't, you know, that fundraising continuum that eventually needs to move the donor outside of that stream. The, the example you're giving, Steve, I had a colleague of mine here yesterday, um, who, who says he works with clients and he'll tell the client, you've got Hundreds, if not thousands, you've got you've got remarkable amounts of, of names in your file, and I'm telling you, uh, based on my analysis, that 30% of your file um, will never never prove to be, there'll never be a net. And there's a lot of rationalizing and a lot of denial about why that donor has to stay on that file, why right. you have to keep mailing. The, 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 the organization you just referenced, if you went and, and talked to them and you said, take me off of your list, there's plenty of people that have come up with all sorts of seemingly honorable reasons why they have to keep mailing to you. Right. You know, oh, he'll leave us in their will and all sorts of things. Yep. But at some point, we have to sort of maybe sort of, sort of, step back and sort of ask her question, will he actually do that? How, how accurate really is that? And, 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 um, 
that's some of the stuff that I just think that this this particular addictive sort of behavior, um, it's an uncomfortable thought. It's an uncomfortable sort of paradigm to sort of put ourselves in um, is to sort of ask ourselves, um, does our organization have this addiction to a particular methodology? And then for fundraisers themselves, especially younger newcomers who are trying to sort of get out of this sort of this this loop of turning over every 18 months, um, if we don't ask ourselves some hard questions, things aren't going to get any better. And the small shops don't have the buffer. Right. Um, the big shops are doing, you know, you could, we, we certainly could go and you could, some of these larger institutions have the same, same problems, but they have a much different buffer um, to, to sort of avoid some of the consequences of this. But the small local charity uh, who oftentimes is the type of organization guys like you and me are trying to help don't have those buffers. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't tolerate their their system's not designed to sort of tolerate some of the dysfunction and what they're doing um, nearly as well as maybe some of the maybe the big shop across the street does. Right. Well, we are starting to run out of time as uh, folks are getting ready to shift in the conference yeah, okay. here. So I I want to make sure we talk about um, the book because uh, the pre-orders are available now. It's actually shipping pretty soon. Um, can you just tell people a little bit about um, easiest way to read the whole thing and learn more about the idea? Yeah. So it's trending uh, really well on the Amazon in its category. It's trending really well, sometimes hitting the number one spot. Um, um, it is available. You can certainly pre-ordered on Amazon. Um, It releases, um, the release date is April 15th to coincide with AFP's international conference in in New Orleans. Um, Me and a colleague will be there um, haven't decided how many books we're going to give away and how how we're going to necessarily take advantage of that pretty that obviously very visual visual you know very visible sort of opportunity to promote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but yeah, April fifteenth um, is the is the date, and um, I'm hoping this does pretty well. Great. So as people read the book and they want to engage the conversation more, uh, do you have favorite social channels that you kind of keep talking about these ideas? I know that we met over LinkedIn, but are there other places that you like to encourage people to visit you? Yeah, I am prob- I'm probably extremely extremely findable, if that's a word. <laughs> um, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm very well connected in the nonprofit and fundraising space on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest place to find me. Okay. Um, LewisFundraising.com is my website. Um, and I have very simple email address, Lewis, Jason at LewisFundraising.com. Uh, but LinkedIn is probably, as you and I connected that way, it's probably the most sensible and probably the most expedient way um, I love social media. Social media is serving this particular project very well, so I'm pretty quick at responding. Um, and I can say that, uh, just to sort of one, one thought, the book is written in such a way where it needs to sort of be wrestled with and anticipating yeah. some pushback and stuff. And I can say that I'm giving that to my readers in terms of the um, my advanced readers. Um, I want the feedback. I want to have the discussion. I want to be told by some of our readers that, you know, some of that just doesn't sit well with me. Some of that just doesn't make sense. Um, and so I'm making myself available to my readers so that, um, so that they don't feel like I'm sort of, I don't want to maintain an arm's length relationship for my 
readers. And you know, as as the noise continues, one yeah. one last quick thought: um, the um, in in a scan of an early version of the book, I can I can see where this would be the kind of thing that even if you are not a experienced professional in the field, um, that it could be a great place to begin a conversation within, say, a board of directors. Everybody gets a copy of the book. Everybody reads it. You spend some time at the board meeting talking about what do we see. Um, in these challenges, because there are some challenges in there, and that could be a really um, interesting way to start a conversation internally around this war that's going on and conversations about it. So um, yeah. encourage people to think about those ways of using this as a, a, a spark in, in getting your own organizational cultural examination going. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of my readers are telling me, you're saying the things that we know in our head and our heart, and we just appreciate that you're putting it on paper, yeah. but how do we get this in the minds of our boards and bosses? Yep. And um, and so um, I think I think I would encourage any board, any executive who hasn't hired that first development director yet to maybe put this book in front of them and go through it. It's an easy read. It's not a long read. Um, and um, and and sort of examine some of your assumptions about how this works. Um, and I can assure you it's going to help you um, I don't leave them, one of the reviews I've recently received, I don't leave you with sort of a dismal sort of despair. <laughs> it does end with a solution. Um, it's not a solution that fits everyone. Um, it is a solution for small shops, and you and I haven't unpacked a lot of that today. But I can assure you there is. The second half of the book is a way, and that's the subtitle, How Do Small Shops Win? Yeah. I, do, I do chart a course for the small shop to win this war. Um, and not necessarily at the expense of the bigger wars. Um, I do think we need to get in the business of knowing how to create talent, um, not fighting and competing for talent, um, learning how to create. And I think the small shops with younger, younger fundraising professionals are a great place to do that. Um, and, uh, and yeah. I think that's where we'll have to that's leave it. That's where we'll I'm wrap gonna up. Just thank, thank you so much. Jason Lewis, thanks so much for the time. Thank you.